thank you everyone for joining us uh, for this uh, next segment here on Maria Report. So I hear you have been busy in recent days, and at the same time, others have just as well. President Zelensky has been zigzagging through Europe. Um, ben Wallace has been doing pretty much the same, but under the radar, lots and lots of decisions being made across different nations as to equipment, and at the same time, the Ukrainians are fighting their constant battle throughout the northern and the central Donbass sector. Lots and lots to talk about. Where do you want to start? I'd say we start uh, from uh, the very beginning. I've shared um, a tweet from the very beginning, from the situation on the ground. Um, people who have joined us previously know that I'd like to talk about the situation, let's say, from uh, not exactly the nitty-gritty of things, but from a more um, overall operational perspective. Here I've shared to the to the rest of the space a tweet by me. Uh, with three maps by Germany of the West. Uh, I highly recommend his work. Uh, I also recommend highly recommend all the work of people like uh, Defmon, uh, Ukraine War Mapper, Institute for the Study of War, Andrew Perpetua, and some others who, who do... Well, we do some of the hard work of compiling and uh, and putting on maps... Um, things we, uh, the situation and how it's evolving and follow that closely. People also like military land that, so a shout out to all of them for their extraordinary work that enables us to to be here and discuss the maps. The maps are simple, are for uh, they're uh, from a they're they represent the situation on the the beginning of February. Which is um, which has changed a little bit, but nothing uh, outstanding. But they are very detailed, and they are mostly for the audience to be able to uh, look at it and follow and follow the and follow the geography and what we're talking about. What do you think, Axel? I think that's a very good start, especially because many people haven't really looked at what is happening between what is essentially the Russian border all along um, east of the Oskil River, down to Svartov and then down to Kremina, where um, the Russians have been accumulating a lot and lot of force. And the Ukrainians are, um, say, well entrenched and uh, fighting their battle. So um, uh, let's give it a go. Okay, let's start there. If you look at one of these maps, the first one, um, you'll see that it details that exactly what Axel was talking about, the Kremina front with uh, Svatov, Staroblisk, and um, a northern Lugansk front, let's put it this way. And this region um, ha is going to be, and I've said it in the previous edition, and I've, uh, I'll, I'm, I wasn't very wrong, apparently um what the, um, this is going to be one of the main lines of effort by the russians why well first of all they've accumulated significant forces here um and then they have here i'd say two key objectives one is kupiansk which is a major uh boat uh road and tr and train uh, hub 
it's a, a, three, a key uh, ground lines of communication. It's a, uh, from here you can uh, move west easily and or with greater ease and you can bring in additional uh, reinforcements. And also because Russians really need, the Russian command knows that they need to push this front westward towards the Oskil River, which is the river you see here uh, with a few bridges uh, just south of Kupiansk. And south from this river, you have uh, Lyman also, which is one of the key logistical hubs uh, in uh, Ukraine. I'd say this is absolutely key for this reason. The Russians know Russian command has a, has a has a window of opportunity here. And what is the window of opportunity in my view? The window of opportunity here is a time frame where all the promised assets and all the assets that are being committed to Ukraine, mainly more uh, artillery, more uh, in battle tanks, or uh, more um, and more uh, infantry fighting vehicles uh, are not yet in theater and Ukrainian forces are still being trained on them. And this is something that uh, makes Russian command use this window before all these forces are in Ukraine, which will be March April to try and push this uh, front uh, westward and try to reach the outskirts of or the the borderline of the Lugansk region by seizing obviously Kupiansk by seizing uh, the Oskil River crossings and by seizing Lyman down to the south. This for them is absolutely essential because the moment if this does not happen. The moment some of the the heavy armor and uh, the deep strike assets and the the infantry fighting vehicle, the moment let's put it this way: the moment Ukraine has Western equipped, totally Western equipped uh, armored brigades, um, this front is very uh, is very uh, problematic for Russia. Because if Ukraine breaks into Svatov and moves along the H-26 towards Starovilsk, Starovilsk, sorry, all northern Lugansk is lost. All the approaches to to uh, Sviarodonetsk uh, from the north are seized, and all the the approaches to Lugansk city are compromised. And this, for Russia, would mean they would basically collapse one of the republics. The moment Luhansk collapses, all the rest becomes uh, very, very tricky to defend. That's This is, I'd say, the reason why we're going to see a big, in my view, a big Russian push. We are probably on the eve of a big Russian push in this region. I'd say that Ukraine, uh, we've seen some additional fighting uh, today. We've seen uh, units be, we've seen or uh, we've we know that there are some units there are significant reinforcements being uh, staged for this operation and this is the does not mean however there are not other lines of effort 
but this is what I say one of the main lines of effort of the coming Russian offensive because they have this this window. What do you think, Axel? Yeah, I was just about to ask you. Um, most of these maps which we see have significant more in- indicative visibility uh, as to Russian forces because we pick up a lot of data. A lot of data is being leaked. But as to the Ukrainian force structure and allocation across the line, very little is known. They seem to have reasonably good operational security in that regard. But if people look at at least what is visible here on this, let's take the first map just for it, um, you can see that the Ukrainians have been building up a line which they can, if need be, retreat from a little. They can give a little on a regular basis. There's still a lot to be done towards Kupiansk. So if they were to trip the Russians in one location, they could also then, if they have the force for it, meaning mechanized or an armor force, they could even break through, as you just indicated. They just have to pick their poison and they have to pick the point and the location. And they need to have, in combined arms, they need to have the artillery and rocket artillery to actually pound the Russians into um, opening their line. How do you see this? Where, where are the main choke points? And where are the main points where they should go for looking at the P-79, for example, going in from Urasovo in Russia, providing supplies still to the Russians on the one hand, and then their rail lines? Where would you do it? Where would you look at? I would look at Svatov and Starobrilsk. That's where uh, this axis here, right here, is where you break uh, the northern, uh, where you break Lugansk, basically. You uh, launch an operation here in the north, you seize this line, and uh, you you cut through northern Lugansk. And then you have access to uh, Sviarodonetsk. If you look, in, uh, let me see here, one of the maps. Yes. If you look at the last map, the third map, you'll see uh, the map has also the cities of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. You'll see that Svatov commands and Kraminas command the access to Severodonetsk and Lishishchenk in the south, down south. And uh, here on the uh, on the east front, till, uh, there's the access to Lugansk city. So the moment you uh, seize this, the moment you seize this axis up north, is the moment you have a major, major problem. Obviously, Russians can... This won't be a unique front, okay? I, I would say that Russia will be conducting several support operations, even eventually some operations to fix forces uh, up in Kharkiv Oblast from Russia. But there's a lot of ground to be covered to, to seize Kupiansk. Kupiansk is a fairly large city, it's very well defended. And yes, Ukraine can um, trade some ground and for attrition. Sure. That's actually what Ukraine has been doing, did first of all in Sviarodonetsk and now has been doing uh, in Bakhmut. Uh, because unlike many people, I think Bakhmut is worthless. Bakhmut would have interest, um, but we'll get to Bakhmut, but Bakhmut would be interesting uh, back in April, right now, or May. Right now, it's hardly important. Uh, 
but here, uh, looking at this map, it's easy to understand that you want to push, you want to use a natural barrier uh, to allow to to complicate any counteroffensive by the Ukrainians. So you need to seize forcibly. You need to seize Kupiansk, and you need to see you need to push force uh, Ukrainian forces to the west of the 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 Oskil River, and then you'll need to seize uh, Lyman to, to, down south of Oskil to threaten Izium again and uh, re-establish control over this this region. Now, can the Russians do this in this window? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure also that they can uh, push these forces without risking uh, another counterattack in another region, especially for instance in the south, in Zaporizhia. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, Ukraine, and as you were saying, Axel, there's significant operational security uh, by the Ukrainians. They have done a good job in keeping uh, uh, a degree of operational security. And that tells us that uh, they probably have um, some some capability that uh, may be... um, reserved for uh, counterattacks because this is that's that's the key element here it was interesting uh, when you highlighted this for example as to the defense of kupiansk and the area that whilst the russian forces there with a lot of artillery what is told um, have made slight gains uh, moving ever inch by inch closer but they are facing uh, for example um, a tank battalion uh, on the Russian, on the Ukraine side, and significant mechanized forces, um, mechanized forces which have been very successful in the past, both in terms of feints as well as uh, tactical withdrawals and then counterattacks. So the 14th and the 67th Reich have been about doing so. Kraken uh, is operating on the corridor, Kupiansk onwards to um, Saratov towards the road, and they tend to be extremely, extremely capable. So. There seems to be a good array of those troops which have already proven to be successful. Some of the troops actually which have been in the Kherson area have now been moved. And we can see that the 92nd mechanized is there. We can see the 66th mechanized. Uh, all names which people who've been following this have seen a lot of times. There's also the um, 80th um, and yeah, assault battalion, which is interesting because they were the ones who were before, if you remember, the pocket which once had, um, that's a long time ago now, uh, south of Le Mans. And when we were looking at Bavinkoe, this is where the 80th was. And they literally attrited the Russians extremely successfully. So these are the ones that were south of Svartova. So for what you just described, this is a perfect setup in terms of which forces are where and who has the capabilities. Because on the other side, they're facing... Um, reconstituted uh, battle tactical groups of the Russians, um, all the names which we've seen before and who were either annihilated or had to be rebuilt, whether it's this 14th, 5th, and the 35th, and the 76th, and the likes. They have a bit of VDV there. We do not know how strong they actually are because they've been completely reconstituted. And there's one or two, um, say, guards mechanized, but that's it. Um, 
I think that there's a very good opportunity that you're absolutely spot on that they'll take Svartova or circumnavigate Svartova to cut it off and go for the H26. I think that that makes sense because um, the the thing is uh, Ukrainians have, as you said, some uh, some key units in this region. Uh, they have had time to uh, uh, reconstitute, to uh, resupply. There's some reinforcements of the forces uh, trained in the West that have been forwarded to this region. So if there's any counterattack to be done here, it's obviously Svatov and Starobilsk. Because the H-26 here, doesn't matter what you have up north, doesn't matter what you have up south, down south. The moment you cut this off and the moment you have the forces to push, Russians, Russian lines will be... Uh, in a very, very dire situation, especially because uh, forces, Ukraine have forces also uh, in the vicinity of Izichank, which is down south. If you look at the third map, you'll see here the region of Sviarodonetsk and Izichank, and there's significant forces here. And this region, this is strategic. The moment this falls, Actually, if everyone remembers, the Russians did quite the number to seize uh, Sviarodonetsk. And again, it was abandoned uh, after uh, some heavy fighting. And this is uh, probably, if I was planning anything for the Ukrainians, this would be one of the places I would, I would, be, um, I would be looking at. Uh, this is a key region for all the for all for everyone, and I I believe uh, that people need to understand that we may see. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But we may see Ukraine lose some ground or cede some ground. Um, and this may be um, this may be part of the design also, right? Attrition is uh, an important factor. Right? If you would treat the Russian army enough and you keep your reserves fairly ready, uh, you'll be able to push when the time comes and when the opportunity arises because this is quite a large front. Okay? And uh, Ukrainian forces command the, the, the accesses of the Oskil River. So there's a lot of ground to be seized and there's a lot of ground to be lost too. Now, should we maybe move then closer to exactly that area? Um, if you look at, again, Grubizhne, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, and then on the other side, you have Siversk standing out as one uh, relatively fortified area, surrounded by a lot of Ukrainian forces, um, battling off um, the Russian side, both Wagner as well as regular army. Um, how would you describe that? Because this is an area which has been fought over so hard and so intensively back and forth now for many months. Um, maneuver warfare doesn't really come into play anymore. The Ukrainians are not attacking. Uh, on the map, you can still see what happened at the end of January. That has changed by now. They are now essentially waiting and letting the Russians come, from what we understand from the past couple of days, if what is being said and conveyed is to be believed. How do you see that area? Is this where they will give way to consolidate the front line? Uh, 
or will they have to hold it in order to make sure that Bakhmut and Solidar and the region down south does not actually become more virulent? I'd say that you need to hold Chazibiar, right? Uh, that's important. Uh, but Bakhmut itself, Bakhmut itself and the city, even Solidar. I remember very well when people told me that, well, Solidar has fallen. Yeah. And we're uh, two weeks, three weeks into Solidar has fallen. And what happens, uh, how that, what did that represent uh, in terms of operations for the Russians? What gain came from there? What new, can anyone tell me? Because, okay, Solidar has fallen. But I had to move upwards, way. right? <laughs> right? What, what, did, what came out of that? What what possible gain came out of that to justify the the loss of of men and hardware to seize that 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 city? Sorry, that city. I don't see um, significant gains coming out of that. Uh, same with uh, Bakhmut. Bakhmut would be very interesting. It's it's very important. If you look at the third map, Bakhmut is very important because it commands the MO3 that uh, leads to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. Now, this would have been a key city back in May, back in April, because back in April or back in May, if Russian forces had seized Bakhmut, they could have moved fast from the north and from the east into Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, which are key regional uh, point, key, ob key objectives in the region. We're uh, uh, nine months after that. Uh, Bakhmut is worthless. It's an attrition battle. If Ukraine retreats from Bakhmut today, it will mean they will retreat to pre prepared, heavily fortified positions around the axis of Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. This isn't exactly something that uh, does anyone really believe that the Russian military has in them the capability to then go immediately exploit success and try to, to seize uh, Slovyansk and Kramatorsk from what we've seen so far? Because I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. There's a lot of people saying they'll go and they'll move westwards like uh, the German army once did. Uh, no, they won't. Because uh, they haven't. They haven't. They didn't do it on the first, uh, on when they had really an opportunity here um, to, to try and do this. Uh, and they haven't uh, done this again. Um, Funny enough, um, as one of uh, my followers who's in the audience, a friend, usually says who's a military history buff, uh, this really, re what the Russians trying to do resembles what the, the Soviets tried to do back with Operation Gallup and Operation Star in uh, in World War II. Uh, it's, it's trying to cut off the, um, the Ukrainian forces in this case and even that they're trying to, because another 
area where we may look at it's the Vuladar effort, right? What's the worth? What's Vuladar worth, right? Because people have seen so many here as, as have been following this uh, war, and we've seen all of us have seen the multiple reports from credible sources about the massive or the significant attacks the Russians have been uh, staging against Vuladar. So what's Vuladar worth? Because unless it's a, a line of effort to support uh, other operations, it's worth nothing. Right? Unless you're using Vuladar to create a pocket into Donetsk and uh, as a, an axis from there to uh, support other operations coming from the from the east of the front, it's worth nothing. The city itself, it's worth nothing. It's actually, Vuladar is more like a, a pass-through, isn't it? If and when um, Ukraine were to counter-attack uh, and move towards the south, then Vuladar becomes an important piece where they need to pass along, pass through, however you want to say, and then uh, hold the Russians at bay so that uh, the main pincer movement could, can go down south, correct? Yes, that, that's my point exactly, Axel. Uh, Vuladar, for the Russians, and this is for the Russians, is important if you're trying to make a pincer movement down from, from the north. But unless you're trying to stage the whole wide front assault uh, to push all of Donetsk front and all of Lugansk front west, Vuladar itself is not um, a, a very relevant objective, right? Uh, it's a, it's relevant, it becomes relevant. It's in a certain sense, it's like Bakhmut. It was, Bakhmut was relevant back in May. Vuladar is relevant if you are able to seize it, and from there you you support. You're able to exploit it. Um, one of the things I've I've um, seen, and one of uh, one of the things that uh, honestly sometimes makes me wonder about Russian capabilities is they seem to be um, unable to exploit success, even when they have it. They seem unable to uh, run a combined arms operation in military operations in urban terrain with the necessary uh, capabilities or with the necessary uh, follow-on forces to exploit, even when they have success, to exploit it. They're, they really are really, really bad at exploiting success because they uh, basically seize an objective after attrition and then they don't have the follow-on forces to exploit that success. You don't seize an objective for seizing an objective unless it's Kiev, right? Unless you're uh, trying to seize Kiev, which, okay, you're going to fight an attrition battle to uh, topple the government and to, to, to seize that key ground. Unless you're doing that, there's no reason, there's no logic in uh, fighting a major attrition battle and then not having the forces to exploit it because you're 
depleted your forces in 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 an attrition battle in a region. It is interesting that the Russian um, um, command seemingly has a completely different view of the battlefield in terms of how they interpret where they see opportunity and where they see a need uh, to uh, concentrate their forces. Um, often enough, um, it does seem to make very little sense. But at the same time, you and I, we do not know what the Ukrainians have available. But there are some, there are some things which the Russians are currently doing, which um, can only be described as World War One kind of mass attacks and uh, that they cannot continue for much longer. Three, four, five months maybe, but at that point in time, they would have lost, what, 800 to 1,000 a day. At some point in time, you are losing uh, too many infantry soldiers and you can't reconstitute them and you don't have enough mobics to just throw in. That's, that's what I, I totally agree. And uh, as CJ, who's a, a real report contributor, uh, aptly said to me, and this is his term, and he's absolutely spot on with this, is Russia, at this rate, is burning through one global war on terror of casualties a week. Let, for the audience, let that sink in. Remember all the casualties of of the global war on terror in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in other places of the world. And Russia is burning through the same amount of men a week in this effort. Well, I, what, I'll say something here that is probably um, anathema to some, to some, but I agree I agree with Strelkov or Gherkin, Igor Gherkin. They should have mobilized. Unless you mobilize another 500,000 and you prepare them, this is not going to go very well. Because this is a very, very large front. Okay, we are talking about Lugansk and Donetsk mostly because of the coming offensive. But people shouldn't forget that Ukraine has the ability, for instance, to threaten the South. What happens if Ukrainian reserves burst into the south? What forces does Russia have available to defend Tom, Tomak and Melitopol and Berdyansk and all that? Once the moment they're fully committed to this operation in the in in Lugansk and Donetsk, what happens? Because that's the that's the other thing here. You can play a defense here. You can do uh, a def- you can run defensive operations in this region, but you can run offensive operations in other regions, right? And what I think the the Russian command is trying to do, beyond obviously the political the politically uh, imposed objective of seizing Donetsk and Lugansk to its borders, which I believe the Kremlin uh, makes sense that the Kremlin imposed that on Gerasimov and Shoigu. I mean, Vladimir Putin probably imposed that, and uh, and Nikolai Patrushev. But the reason beyond that, militarily, if you're going to stage an operation like this, you really, really, really 
should have mobilized. Another 250, 300,000 to throw in. Because you're taking, this is a big chance. You're taking a huge risk here. And you have a, a time window, a time frame, which is two months, three months. It's fairly limited. It's okay. Let's call it. They have a time uh, a time frame to to April, late April. Four months, three months. Sorry, three months of this. Is this sufficient enough to to break through all of the Donetsk? I find it hard to believe. That's exactly the point. Um, and even if they had raised 500,000, and even if they have the officer, the NCO corps, to actually lead them and uh, bring them up to a cohesive state and then battle strength and battle readiness, they would still only have, what, about 35% thereof, maximum, even with their force design, force structure, um, combat troops. So we are not. We are simply not talking that strength of an army which they would need in order to overwhelm uh, the Ukrainian forces in the region. They are not getting to the level of, I mean, for the way they are fighting, even if we say that they have massive amount of artillery still at their disposal and that they have a number of soft, uh, they do not have the mechanized force in that strength as they would need it. They're now relying on all the tanks. And if they need so much combat troop contingent or so many combat troop contingents, they need to have a, a force setup which is not three to one, but rather four to one, in order to make their strategy work. They don't have that. So what are a million men, Axel? A million yeah. men. That this is what we're talking about. We're talking one point five million men overall committed to the theater to try and break through and try to push Ukraine to the Dnipro. That's what that's the numbers we're talking about. You're not going to do this with uh, five hundred thousand guys, of which, let's say, two hundred thousand are, at best, combat troops, right? This is this is the the, the even if you have three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand combat troops available, which they don't, uh, the numbers don't add up. This is huge. This is a huge, huge geographic space. If again, if we look at World War II, what was the size of the Russian uh, army doing this back then? It's in the millions. It's in the millions. So this makes. I'm not seeing this. This I I, I believe this. They will try this, obviously, because for political reasons. But I'm not seeing how this succeeds without some injection of. Uh, forces or other types of uh, ordinance or whatever they're trying to do here um, because they risk if Ukraine goes on offensive operations in the south, what happens? I know this uh, it seems like the guy who's trying to, to do this is asking a lot of questions but I want people to think about it because it's the geographic space. David? Oh yeah, no, I was going to say, I was going to reiterate your point really. So the um in there uh, with regards to what they're trying to achieve it's it's as if 
and this isn't a surprise, there's been no thought, because they haven't asked the questions. Uh, what do we do? Uh, the, um, the Ukrainians forced them to move troops to Kherson because they moved down to the south. And uh, everything is related to, as you say, they don't have enough troops. And no one has asked the question or said, we don't have enough troops to do what you want to achieve. It's almost as if someone's just gone, I want you to go over there and then go and do something, but no planning, um, no structure. It doesn't even, other than, you know, someone wants a bit of territory, no strategic plan on how they can they can hold it or anything along those lines. And as you said, um, if you Ukraine uh, were to start moving some troops that are coming in from the training and, threatening towards Crimea, what do they do? They have no one uh, that can actual fact go and do anything, really. There, there isn't enough. They don't, it's not big enough. And the question you were saying, talk about numbers. H how do they get those people in there now? Uh, th this is really a question. They, if, if there was a plan for this two years ago, this is something they should have planned for. And as you said, mobilized immediately. Mobilizing now isn't going to help them, is it? Because um, they won't be able to get their, these people trained and in a physical shape to fight war quickly enough. What do you think, Nim? And David, to your point, to your point on that, to your point on that, Russia decides to mobilize now. Okay, let's say tomorrow morning, Vladimir Putin comes on TV and says we're going to mobilize the full might of the Russian Federation now. Two things come to mind. Three things, actually. First, that takes a bit of time to just get people to their assigned units for training. Second, people who start receiving those notifications, as we've seen in the first mobilization, uh, if we are doing mass mobilization, um, that won't very, go very well for the Kremlin. But let's assume uh, that the Rodina calls and Russians respond in strength, which I, uh, from previous experience, find hard to believe. But they respond in strength and they join up to fight. So you train a million men within six months, if you can, which I don't think they can because they saw they were hard-pressed to train 300,000. You arm them, you equip them, which, again, we found, we've seen how hard-pressed Russia was to equip people, even with uh, individual uh, equipment and small arms. And then you're going to throw them into the fight, let's say, in June, July, August at best, peak summer. And you're going to throw a bunch of mobilized guys into the fight with just their uh, basic training done and their specialties against the hardened, Western-equipped, uh, Western-trained, motivated, defending their homeland, Ukrainian army. Not to mention, the moment you do this, all probably... Uh, all holds on things like attackums, uh, the army tactical missile, and even air aircraft, and all of that will be sped forward. 
by the West. What you're going to do? You're going to throw these millions of men into a meat grinder with an armored spearhead of armored cavalry units with Western aircraft above them. Is that it? Because that that's that one sec. That plan that plan sucks. Honestly, not going to work either. That's why I I actually believe with Gherkin. I think the guy's serious when he says this is not going to work. This isn't really going to work, and they they need to, uh, and they need to to understand this. If you tell me, okay, we're going to leave uh, all of the all of the the southern uh, land corridor to Crimea, and then we are going to uh, commit to uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, all of our forces, and we're just going to defend Crimea. That might work, but it's too late right now. That's my point. Let's, I'd say, Axel and David, let's open the questions to the audience. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, I was, I mean, before we do that, I was just about to round this one thing off, that the strategic defeat which Russia suffered already last year, right at the beginning, when they were beaten back at Kiev, when Chernyiv and Sumy held, and when the sacrifice which occurred in um, Mariupol, which tied up the forces, when that strategic defeat occurred, they haven't recovered from it because they have not set out new, sensible, strategic targets and adapted to them. They have not thought through what they wish to achieve. And the stuff which they now pursue, they cannot achieve by these means because they haven't planned it through. That's my view. I, I, agree, I agree. Sorry, David, go ahead. Agreeing with uh, Axel saying that I think that anyone uh, with a, a little bit of sense would be uh, thinking exactly the same thing, isn't it? I do apologize. No, no problem, but that's that's a good point. That's it. That's it. Uh, as I said, for instance, Bakhmut. Take Bakhmut. Take Mariupol. Take Sivirodonetsk. Bakhmut would be... I would have staged a massive assault on Bakhmut back in May. With everything I got on my on my inventory. So I could move into Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. Now, it's worthless. It's a worthless military objective right now. But I'll let's open to the to the audience. Anyone who wants to come up, please do. Uh, let's open questions and see where the discussion leads us before we move into politics a little bit further. Well, wonderful, uh, guys. Uh, stick your hands up if you've got any questions. Well, you both either, are powers. Um, You're the only ones who have either, the have the power. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yes, either either I'm very clear or I'm very boring. One one of the two. <laughs> well, it's never that. Uh, the often when I've been listening to you, uh, the I, I've never bothered uh, putting my hand up to ask a question because I've understood everything you said and pretty much always agreed. Right? Uh, the uh, um, so maybe that's what the case is. Um, and they surely there will be someone who can ask a question. 
I can see we that Chris, Chris is waving his hand. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, gents. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Fine, fine, Chris. Fine. Thank you. Uh, great to hear you again, Nuno. Um, like, I'm no military strategist than that, but um, like from the very beginning, when they only attacked with 200,000, you know, my, you know, I was just like doing back of fag packet calculations and thinking, well, you know, like they're never going to do it, you know, and, and then you see the, the graphs, mm -hmm. right, with the, the numbers of Ukrainians and the number of Russians crossing, you know, i.e., i.e. the number of Ukrainians is exceeding the number of Russians. And you sort of go, well, there you go, you know, and like unless they do um, like a massive mobilisation and they're successful at it, <laughs> you know, it's impossible. And I'm just like, I'm just like reading the simple strategic, you know, military rules of the past, you know, um, but, you know what? What I wanted to like ask is um, just been like, you know, what what is the impact, if any, of the freezing or not freezing of the ground in Ukraine? Uh, because it seems to me that we like we are we we've sort of been like saying, oh, it's going to freeze, oh, but it hasn't frozen yet, right? Um, and then and then sort of now we're saying oh well soon it'll be thawed and i'm like okay what happened to the bit where it was frozen and something might happen so i suppose my question is is it really important and you know what do you think is going to happen i think it's logistically important for the ground chris honestly i think the the ground being frozen is obviously better than the ground being the ground being muddy but, um, I mean, armored warfare, especially tracked armored warfare, is possible in any condition. It may be harder, but it's possible. I, it, it significantly impedes uh, other things. Uh, for instance, the mud significantly impedes, for instance, wheeled vehicles and impedes this on both sides. The mud, the, the weather and the mud doesn't choose sides. Um, it impedes also um, logistical movement. And we should never forget one thing about the Russians. If you're engaging in you know, Russians and Ukrainians, but for the Russians here, if they're engaging in uh, offensive operations, they have this issue, which is they need to keep pushing their logistical trains forward. And that's the other thing about all this. Um even if you mobilize, even if you throw more forces at it, does your is your logistics significantly significantly uh, uh, scaled up to keep up with offensive operations? Because that's a question we need to ask. I'm not really sure about that, Chris. And the ground will have the ground will have um, probably some some issues. The ground will have will be. Uh, significant uh, in terms of uh, um, of the operations will impede operations to an extent. Uh, will sure it will, it will. 
but I mean logistically it's more it's more important to to do that uh, right here. I hope that uh, that answers your question, Chris. Yes, thank you, Nina. Uh, Non-locality. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the space. Thank you for all the comments, Slava Ukraini. Uh, I have a question. I'm sorry. I have a question regarding the Starlink update and what the impact might be on the Ukrainian defense forces. I'm curious to know if there's any um, evidence, any any idea what these offensive operations are that are being referenced about limiting Starlink operations or related to that in some, some way? Okay, I'll step down. Well, I'd say that I've seen the news. I'm not really sure if that those news, that specific set of news is correct. I've seen it. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm I'm a big fan of uh, the way the Pentagon sometimes conducts business. Not always, but sometimes. I'm pretty sure that somebody will have a conversation with Elon, telling Elon, "Well, Elon, uh, your uh, SpaceX is a major uh, defense and uh, government contractor. So get with the program, Elon." Um, I'm not. I'm not very. Um, concerned about that because in the end money talks and the SpaceX is a success is one of Elon's most successful businesses because it has a bunch of contracts with DOD and it has a bunch of contracts with NASA and I'm pretty sure somebody in the in the US government will have the necessary conversation uh, with uh, with uh, SpaceX um board of directors uh, so let's see how that plays out uh, i would not like my political and taxpayer funded uh, support of ukraine to get bogged down because some private company on with on whose who i depend has some sort of agenda by their uh, main shareholder so I'm pretty sure that will be uh, resolved appropriately. Star, please go ahead. I hope that answers the question also. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a question. It's about uh, the troops. Um, is the more okay for them? I mean, it's pretty hard to fight in war. Um, are they fine? I suppose so, yes. Thank you. I see we have on the panel Jeff. How are you doing? Colonel Jeff, how are you doing, man? Hey, I'm great. It's uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, how you been? Everything is fine. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Jeff. So, any other questions from the audience? Jag, I think Jack Earl is still up, and then we can. Please, Jack Girl, go ahead. Sorry. Um, one thing I've kind of been wondering is we were told in the summer and fall that, or probably the fall, 
that over the winter things would slow down a lot and not to expect a lot of action. And so what we've seen mostly is Bakhmut and Solidar. And so I'm wondering how what's transpired has fit with what was kind of expected or what would be expected in the winter action. And that's it. Thank you. I think uh, we've seen uh, quite uh, significant actions during the winter, actually. Um, I, I never expected a full lull of operations because this isn't also not World War II. But it's significantly more difficult, again, to, to stage operations. And frankly, frankly, Russia has been focused on Solidar and Bakhmut. And Ukraine has uh, shifted some forces, has rested forces, has reconstituted some units, has moved forces around. In uh, in that sense, uh, everyone, uh, the Ukrainians used this period to press northern Lugansk, but to mainly consolidate and rest and recuperate their forces for the next stage and to keep... Uh, providing uh, the defensive operations around Solidar and Bakhmut that we've seen in Russia in terms of offensive operations has focused on this region of uh, Solidar and Bakhmut. And uh, this fixing operation, because that's what it is, in Bakhmut has proven very successful by the Ukrainians. And it has been, uh, I'd say, um, something that we that we can... Um, uh, it's, it was to be expected that would be some in operations because winter is harsh and it's uh, difficult, uh, becomes uh, more difficult to, to fight in this. And Russia also, one of the key tenets of this winter was the, the attempt by uh, Surov uh, and his command to cripple uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, critical infrastructure, energy, water, uh, enough to heating enough to to try to subvert to try to subdue uh, Ukrainian efforts, they did a lot of damage for sure. Слава Росії, ублюдки, блять, гандони. Чому ви тут балотуєте нахуй? Слава Росії. I see we've upset uh, some of the trolls. Yes, we have. I'm trying to see who it was. It's done. It's done. It was uh, we have upset some of the trolls, uh, but there uh, the the thing here is uh, they've tried to do this uh, again and again, and uh, they failed. Uh, they did not uh, achieve the success they thought they would, because go figure. This ain't Aleppo. Hope that answers the question. Yeah, thank you. Dry fly, go ahead. Hello. Um, my question is, I'm looking at those maps, and they're all from like the 31st of, J of January. Um, it's 10 days since then. Can you give a 
kind of a snapshot of what you think has changed. And the other question I have is that um, we've heard about these units you mentioned, uh, Ukrainian units that are being refitted and rested and and uh, kind of reconstituted. Um, there's been a lot of talk, of course, that uh, Ukraine is getting new tanks. Those won't be in theater. But my read of the situation is there's quite a few tanks still that the Ukrainians have. They may not be the best tanks compared to what they're going to get, but they got quite a haul in the fall, in the late summer, and they've been getting hauls on and off, and they've been getting them rebuilt in uh, the West and in their own shops. What is your gut feel of their, their strength posture versus the Russians that have been moving stuff in? And I will listen. That's a good question, actually. First of all, obviously, uh, there's uh, significant, the Ukraine has significant Russian-made armor, and they've received a lot of them, uh, even from Morocco, uh, from the Czech Republic, from a number of places where we've basically, basically Western, uh, the West uh, and the Ukrainians have uh, raided uh, everything in Every uh, old Soviet stock we had access or available t- to us. Regarding uh, this situation in particular, that was your first question. Sorry about that. Regarding the situation in particular, uh, there's this. I use these maps uh, because it's. I I like uh, the maps very much. There was some changes, of course. There were some changes around um, in the Lizichank in the Donetsk front uh, with uh, some additional. Uh, Fighting over some some uh, villages and, and towns, and there's uh, some uh, Russian headway in Bakhmut, especially in the north of Bakhmut, by cutting the MO3. And there's also in the southern Bakhmut front uh, towards Ivanitsk. There's some um, there's some uh, ability by the Russians to to seize a few a few regions, a few villages and towns that are important in their efforts to encircle Bakhmut and cut, cut the main ground lines of communication. But there's no real uh, operational level significant objectives. If I, that's my point here, and I use those, those uh, maps to illustrate it um, because of that. Uh, the Russians remain very focused on Bakhmut, as I said, uh, trying to encircle the city, try to create a cauldron in that. They've managed to reach the M03 uh, with elements of the, um, the 30th Mechanized Brigade. And um, in Donetsk, they've uh, continued to attack Volodar and Pavlivka, uh, from Pavlivka to try and, seize, uh, try and seize the town. That's roughly uh, the main... Uh, difference between these maps right now and uh, those maps uh, that I've I've put up in the space. Um, the other question is regarding Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine still have significant armor numbers, sure, um, but but uh, I think Ukrainians will. Uh, there's they have probably the ability to run counteroffensive operations, but you're not gonna run a counteroffensive. Unless you uh, see where the enemy is, uh, basically it's a bit like poker. You need the Russians to show their hand, right? If I make myself 
understood. You need them to show their hand, and from there we can um, then commit to where opportunity arises to exploit uh, Russian frailties. I hope that understands uh, answers the question, Grafly. Go ahead. Oh uh, yeah, it does. Um, and the other question I'll say is that we don't really have any idea. I mean, we I look at these maps and I see the Russians laid out, and I see the Ukrainians laid out. Um, I mean. Jomini does a nice job. I agree. I mean, I, I like the fact that he kind of shows the relative strengths, not just arrows here and there, because I mean, it, it's kind of like a vector. You can hit, you know, it, it, a lot of these maps just point the direction, but they don't really tell you the magnitude of the force. You follow me? Um, and sure, Jomini does. I mean, he kind of gives you an idea how many units are there. My question is, I'm guessing there's a lot of units that the Russians aren't that aren't shown on the map that the Russians say have held back into Russia that they could move in. And there's a lot of units that Ukraine has that they're holding back in other places too. What's your feel on that? Do you think that there is a, sure, a, a sure, real significant? Sure, definitely. Yeah. Cause I don't think, I think people look at it and they are there. There's a lot of panic um, that, Oh my gosh, that, you know, Ukraine is so frail and, and it is relative to a giant country next to it, but it's punching way over its weight in part because it's got more weight that we don't see. Do you, is that an accurate statement? And there's, uh, I'd say that yes, uh, to to an extent. Let's let's divide that into into two uh, trains of thought. One, you're correct. Sure, there's forces that the Russians have. For instance, in Belarus, they've trained up. They've reconstituted themselves. Uh, they've uh, they have been rotating them training them up there. They've uh, injected some of them uh, right now uh, in the region. Yes, they have arrayed. They have been preparing for an offensive, sure. Uh, I think that's... And they have probably more significant numbers than we see here. How, how about Ukraine how about also, east of Kharkiv? Do they have any in that area too? Because I keep expecting them to be, start beefing up there and I haven't seen anything. I mean, if if I were the... the... They've seen some... They've, they've done some artillery shelling uh, around Sumi, for instance, uh, but that's more. Uh, I think their their objective there is uh, mostly to fix Ukrainian forces up there, because there's Ukrainian forces up there, right? So they need to fix them uh, up there and not be not to, to allow the Ukrainians to be committed to to the south, right? I think that's one of the one of the tenets here. It's uh, you don't want Ukrainian reserves also fully committed here, right? It's 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 as you say. Ukraine has probably, most likely, um, some reserves, and I've, I've been saying there's some reserves for sure that are prob- possibly uh, that are probably uh, prepared to be thrown in this. But the thing is also, do you want to uh, make? the eastern Lugansk and the Donetsk, the the focal point of the whole war. Because if I'm Ukraine, I don't. I want to I want to trade uh, some ground for time and attrition of Russians, and I want to prepare to break the south. Uh, or if I want to uh, have them stretch their forces thinner, because it's a very it's a huge line of contact. That's that's the thing. That's the numbers are that. But you're correct in that. The other issue about this relative size, relative size matters. But Ukraine has been fully mobilized for war. Russia hasn't, and Ukraine has uh, deeper pockets and more industrial capability 
than Russia will ever have. And that's in the form of Western support, especially uh, the United States and European Union and the enlarged West, like uh, other countries that share our values and uh, our way of life. So in that sense, um, we're talking that, as I said early on in this war, our job here in the West is making sure ammunition, hardware, and money never runs out. And Ukrainians will do the fighting for us. That's they've they've been doing it very well. Agree, hundred percent. I just keep telling, trying to remind people. Sometimes it's what you don't see that's bigger than what you see. And I'm just believing that there's a lot more there in Ukraine right now than that we just don't see. That that whole offensive isn't just waiting for the tanks. Yeah, they need the tanks because the tanks will be the sharp end of the stick. But there's a lot more behind it that we probably don't see. And I, I, I'm putting that in part by the lack of panic I see from the Ukrainian um, top brass. I mean, at the start of the war, there and was, the Ukrainian leadership and the Ukrainian leadership. Yeah, they're they're not panicking like it was the you know a year ago. A year ago, it was pretty scary. Now they're like, okay, yeah, we got problems. We regret the loss of life. We feel the pain of our citizens. But we have a plan. But we've got a plan. Thank you. And I will listen so others can speak. Okay, okay, Dreyfus. But that's a good point. That's exactly it. I think, uh, obviously, modern main battle tanks and IFVs and all that will make will generate the forces to be the not the sharp end of the stick, but the blunt end of the stick, because that's one hell of a big stick, right? So, in that sense, uh, that's what... Uh, and Ukrainian political leadership, if you will get to that uh, next, but Ukrainian political leadership, if we look at it, has been worried about getting the next round, which is fighter jet and long range weapons. And that's that's the thing. Let's go to Alan, who's been uh, patiently waiting for us. Go ahead, Alan, please. Uh, thank you, Nuno. I think, in in a way, I'm asking much the same question Dryfly asked, but hopefully I'll ask it in a slightly different way. Uh, and it comes in two parts. First, at what point can the Ukrainians uh, feel fully confident uh, in being prepared to launch a counteroffensive? Uh, would the arrival of the Bradleys give them that confidence? Will it take the Bradleys plus uh, main battle tanks? Would it take Bradley's plus main battle tanks plus longer range missiles? Uh, and then finally adding on the fourth part, uh, uh, jet fighters. That's, that's part one. Uh, and part two is in terms of time. And there is, I, I believe the Ukrainians have been extraordinarily wise in being patient. There's a lot of wisdom in their patience. But right now, on whose side is time? Is time on the Ukrainian side or is time on the Russian side? Well, first of all, regarding the hardware, I'd say that first uh, first and foremost, uh, especially here in Donetsk and Lugansk, Ukraine's needs Russians to show uh, what's the game, what's, the, what's not the diversion and what's the main focus of their operations, right? Uh, yeah, we know Bakhmut is a, make fun, uh, a major line of effort, but 
for the coming offensive, where are they going to uh, attack most, uh, concentrate their attacks? What's their key objectives that you can feel from the, the forces they've committed? And also, what can you uh, defend with? What can you uh, do to counter those attacks? What you can do to exploit those attacks to your benefit? And, of course, uh, how can you... Uh, I, I would say thwart those attacks because uh, you don't uh, side, you don't derail an offensive like this, but you can predict it uh, the best you can, you, you can exploit uh, whatever success you want to have. So in that sense, I'd say that Ukraine needs to be, Ukrainians are doing what they know to do. They, they need to be patient. They need to to see what, especially in this region, they need to see what the Russians are up to, what there is, let's say, the game plan for the Russian command. And then from there, they'll commit the necessary forces to this. If I'm, if I'm in, this is speculation, but if I'm looking at this in, and I'm Russian command, and I'm Ukrainian command, sorry, I would um, try not to get way too many forces bogged down in Lugansk and Donetsk. Because I want to have the reserves necessary to strike somewhere else and to make it to make a play in the south, for instance. And I keep saying this because this is where, in my view, you win the war. It's breaking Melitopol, Berdyansk axis, and you win the war. From there, uh, Russia is in a massive amount of pain. Uh, and doesn't matter what you do here, you don't have the necessary force, and you haven't mobilized to, to commit to all theaters at the same time. Regarding time, as you said, what's, who's, on, whose side is time? Time is always on the side of time. But honestly, uh, I'd say that this offensive right now is also time-sensitive for the Russians because this is the window of opportunity they have to uh, try and push forward, try to seize these objectives without uh, a fully... Uh, Western armed uh, Ukraine and to try and achieve a political settlement, which I find it hard, to, but uh, that's that's probably what they're thinking. That's my view on this. It's a, a, a window of opportunity they need to seize because they don't have another one. This That's it. This is it. You have, you do it now, you use it or you lose it. Hope that answers your question, Alan. Yes, thank you very much, Nuno. Much appreciated. David. Hey, we are not hearing David. David, your microphone. Yes, yes well, uh, can you hear me now? Perfect. Perfectly. I've no no idea. I took my headphones out, put them back in again. Um, right. So I was saying it's more an observation, comment, question, uh, really. And I I think what we're really seeing is is that um, uh, because Russia has 
they attempted to scale up, didn't they? They went, okay, we're going to have some minor, um, sort of a, a small number or a hundred thousand people. And then they've stopped uh, training people. And there's the, herein lies the problem for Russia, isn't it? Um, Ukraine is scaling up, right? So they've got more people who are going to, going to be the, go to the UK. There's more going to go to, uh, uh, um, uh, to, um, uh, the Netherlands, more are going to Germany. Germany, Germany. Exactly, right? Uh, and as a result, but they haven't stopped. They didn't stop. They didn't ever stop and say, okay, we've got enough now. Uh, they've said we're going to carry on uh, they carry on training more and more. And as a result, uh, uh, the uh, Ukraine has the scale, um, uh, the, uh, the benefit of scaling, right, in the same way as you would with manufacturing, um, if you create one factory, they've got another factory. They're bringing another one online in the same way as the 155 millimeters, and um, uh, which then produces another uh, problem for the Russians is because they don't. Uh, when they look at this and go, how many more troops do they need? They're going to need even more on top of that. Uh, but guess what? They have to start from the start again because they didn't carry on doing their job. So. Yes, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, uh, one thing I find important is um, we in the West need to be. um, We've been progressively doing it, but uh, now that we have finally, uh, one hopes, the German government aboard, um, uh, Germany excels in one thing. And they are absolutely master, world masters that it is when they finally do the right thing after exhausting all options. That's just not the Americans. It's also the Germans. Um, in trying everything else, they have one great uh, aspect to them is that uh, their industrial capability is huge, right? And trust me, if I'm, and we've seen it in the last few days, uh, if I'm the CEO of uh, Ride Metal, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to build little parts like there's no tomorrow for everyone. So in that sense, uh, and I'm going to build Panthers in Ukraine, which is, I find hard, but okay. Uh, so in that sense, um, things are get, are moving in the right direction. The U.S. has moved surely in the right direction in that, and Europe is following. Uh, to next, there is uh, amping production, the, the calendar amping production. So there's a few things going on. That we, Axel, I see you all uh, uh, worried about. Let's go to. Let's see if we have any other questions from the audience. And uh, then does I see a fellow Portuguese, Susana, uh, online, and I see also Vanchas. Sorry if I'm butchering your name, man. Um, but do you have any questions? I do. Can you hear me? Susana, go. Hello. Go ahead, Susana. Good night. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask you if you think it's a probable scenario um, that some countries might put um, boots on the ground there. 
No. No. Which doesn't mean that you have, uh, which does not mean that you don't have um, little blue men, let's call it that way, helping Ukraine, but, or, and of course, yes, let's get the obvious out of the way, which is, yes, there are uh, special operations in intelligence and paramilitary officers of Western intelligence services in Ukraine. Sure. How do people believe that most of this coordination goes along? But there are. But boots on the ground as in fighting forces to fight the war, not really unless this escalates way too much. And then uh, all cards on the table, we'll see what happens. But I don't think um, we'll see uh, troops on the ground or boots on the ground anytime soon. I was not talking about NATO. I was talking about some countries. You like, I don't mean a group of countries. NATO, NATO countries, like for instance, Poland? Yes, or no. another country, no. but not as NATO, as helping. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't okay. think so. Uh, this says uh, the Americans have enforced, uh, the Americans and even the French and the Brits have enforced. Uh, the necessary discipline on everyone to not do anything foolish uh, uh, and uh, keep the effort united the best we can because there's always internal politics uh, everywhere. We've seen it play out in our country with uh, the Leopard Saga um, that tells a lot more, but that's a Portuguese discussion to be had. Not for this which, space. which reminds me, it's a shame. I am ashamed. We're sending three... Yes. Okay, I'm not yeah, saying anything. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's not. But um, but it's it's really plays out to the to the state of things. But I don't think there's uh, countries in the uh, that are going to deploy forces there. Uh, I hope that answers the question, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Thank you. Obrigado. Vanch, go ahead. Vanchas. Sorry if I'm butchering your name. Well, seems to have dropped. Waypoint, go ahead. Good evening, Nuno, uh, David. Welcome. Nice to have a chat here. Um, from Northern, from Northern Germany. Cold outside, going for a walk with my dog. Uh, yeah, I've got a question for you, and that's, um, what are your expectations? Now, I know I'm mine expectations. I'm exporting myself. But what are your expectations, knowing these troops that are now being trained by most probably the cream of the cream of NATO um, uh, NCOs that have now been training um, Ukrainians um, a long time in the UK, obviously since uh, early in, in, in earlier in the war, um, and now obviously in more NATO countries than being trained. What are your expectations of these extremely well-trained soldiers um, <clears throat> not? having the threat, obviously, of bombs dropping and that in uh, within the Ukraine itself, but actually training, you know, um, under far better circumstances in the likes of the UK. What are your expectations of some of these units when they go head-to-heads with um, these uh, Russian conscripts and us, uh, the likes? Because um, I'm sure that the quality of the training, I know my quality of training and units that I worked with, uh, paras, marines, 
Um, and obviously there might be SAS, SPS, uh, Delta Force, anything like that. There could be any sort of uh, uh, NCO that's actually helping with the training. What are your expectations of actually what these lads will be at the, and girls will actually be able to achieve? Thank you very much. Waypoint, I'd say that you're correct. I mean, my expectation is simple. They will be far superior combat force to Russians. They'll be better trained, far better trained, better armed, more disciplined, forces that are also a good mix of, of forces who've seen combat and forces uh, who've not seen combat yet. That mix is important. They'll have the culture of of the West, of our forces, and I say ours, I mean NATO forces, because I work extensively with the Brits uh, in Portuguese. Um, and uh, they'll have our culture. In that sense, uh, we'll be seeing um, forces uh, that are far better led, far better trained. Of course, Russians will uh, uh, do their thing. And there's some serious Russian units also, of course. But um, but I I expect. Well, let's say I don't expect. I we have already seen because, as you point out, there's been training going on in in Germany and in the UK in particular, for instance, since early on, since April or May or June last year, something like that, in the early on stages of the war. Uh, obviously, we wrapped up these operations massively, but honestly. Um, we have already seen some of these forces that went back to Ukraine and they were uh, a, a part of the, the success in the summer. So, yes, I see, I believe they're going to be far superior forces, especially when we throw in the heavy armor and when the, the armored forces get there because that's going to be a sight to behold. B make no mistake, uh, Western main battle tanks and Waypoint has been in the forces and so have I so many here. It's a scary thing to have a Challenger or a Leopard 2 coming your way or a battalion of them. It's a very, very scary sight. Having some... I've, I was chased by CV-90s, so yeah, it's scary. That's my point. Hope that uh, goes to your point, Waypoint. Yeah, well, of course, but um, well, not not just that. When you uh, now they're talking about training rate, uh, the role uh, with Royal Marines um, in the UK. Now, if they're saying they're training with them, they must be already training with them. And my brother actually trained with uh, U uh, Ukrainian forces um, before the war. Um, a couple of years ago, he was training with, uh, with Ukrainians. Um, he wasn't actually training them like they're getting now with basic training. But uh, he said, you know, they were very, very capable young men when he was doing it. Um, but I can imagine uh, if um, if the Russians are there, knowing that uh, trained, you know, raw Marine-style um, um, battalions or platoons or whatever uh, are actually coming at them, then. Uh, I think there's going to be a slightly different uh, sort of worry there, knowing what sort of soldier they're going to be standing up against in comparison with, you know, just somebody who's just been dragged off the streets and given a gun and saying, uh, you know, we give you a bit of basic training and now you're on the front line. Do you know what I mean? Sure, I agree. I agree. Especially if you're talking about um, the paras and the Royal Marines and what are uh, 
special forces in the sense that they are specialized forces, not special operations forces, but special forces or special operations capable forces. Uh, those forces and commando forces will make uh, it it's some rigorous, serious state-of-the-art training. So the Russians will have um, quite their hands full with, with some of these forces. Nick, go ahead. I, 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 the Ukrainian forces trained by NATO may well perform well. I think it's a little bit of a stretch to imagine that the Russians are going to be sort of sufficiently well informed to know which Ukrainians coming at them were trained where, you know, out of the 30,000 that have been trained by NATO or the 200,000 that haven't. So I, I think, and, and, and I don't imagine that the average Russian soldier spends very much time learning about where the you know where the Ukrainians are getting trained. So I, I, I think agree. I'm sure that I'm sure they will perform better, but I think the uh, I think the secondary effects are probably uh, are probably uh, going to be fairly minor. Um, and yeah, the, the certainly compared with the with oh that does appear to be a leopard tank. I think that's going to be uh, more that makes the difference versus. Um, yeah, I mean the, the 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 Russians are presumably being trained that the Ukrainians are chokholes uh, and idiots, um, and uh, you know so they will hang around and 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 uh, and find out exactly how well they're trained. But I don't think there's much danger of them just on the basis of oh these people were trained by the SAS. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to cause a whole lot of people to turn tail and run. No, I think what's going to cause an impact. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, of course, they'll uh, the forces themselves will perform better, obviously, for their training is better. And uh, more than the training is the mix of Ukrainian forces that already saw combat with forces who haven't seen combat but are being trained by NATO. Both of these uh, of this balance is important. And the other, uh, as you say, what's going to make an impact on Russian mobics is some Bradleys shooting a 25-millimeter gun at you uh, with some Leopard or some Abrams coming at you. That's going, to make an, that's going to make an impact. Trust me, that's going to make... Or some CV-90s firing, coming at you, firing 40-millimeter rounds in anti-tank missiles. That's going to, that's going to scare them. And that's uh, probably where we'll see the the bigger let's say moral and operational impact on in, in the field. In that sense, I agree. Of course, uh, they will don't care if Johnny Ukrainian was trained by the SAS, but Johnny Ukrainian trained by the SAS will probably do uh, much better than some Russian Mavic for sure. Yes, that's that's of course uh, true. David, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to make a comment uh, because you just uh, mentioned it, and uh, uh, because um, it frustrates me. Uh, that quite often uh, we talk about them as the same thing. And you pointed out that there is a difference between SOF and SF, Special Forces and Special Operations Forces. And we have a lot of the time on the space, we we sort of talk about them as the same thing. And I wonder if you want to care to explain to everyone the difference, because often we hear everyone talk about SOF, for which there aren't that many, and there are uh, many more people who are part of Special Forces. I think it would be quite useful for everyone to know the difference. Well, long story short about that debate, 
I'd say that think of this, think of it this way. Special forces are specialized units trained to operate uh, in uh, harsher, uh, more special, um, specialized, that dominate specialized conditions. Like, let's say we were talking about the Royal Marines or even the Marine Corps. The Marines are uh, experts in uh, amphibious assault, right? Uh, and they are experts. They can also, but they also can conduct their assaults and all that. Uh, but they are uh, special forces like the Marines, the Pirates, are more akin to commando forces or elite infantry or light infantry forces that are uh, fit for a specific purpose like air assault uh, or amphibious assault or boarding operations or vessel boarding, Caesar in search uh, operations. And they have usually the same type of uh, organization as any other conventional force. Uh, they're they have the same um, uh, command uh, strategic. Uh, their same uh, command level, or they depend on the tactical or the operational commander. Uh, and most of the times, these forces are. Uh, Forces that are uh, highly specialized in particular tasks, they have they are superior fighting units in the sense they have uh, certain ethos and a certain uh, roughness and uh, demanding training, but and they can assist uh, special operations forces in their mission. They are uh, some of these units have specialized units that are special operations capable. Special operations forces are forces that are specifically trained, equipped, and designed to operate um, both uh, clandestinely, covertly, or in the full spectrum of war with a high degree of independence, uh, with missions that depend usually on the higher level uh, Strategic, the strategic commander or even a political uh, decision makers. And these forces have a mod fairly modular organization, uh, have uh, particular assets, and they can be, they can dominate um, any form of insertion, any uh, uh, type of warfare. Um, and obviously, they can. You can specialize forces in particular areas, even in special operations forces. Yes, of course. Uh, but these forces operate in the full spectrum of conflict, from uh, peace to uh, all-out total war, uh, to nuclear war, uh, to the from the full spectrum of conflict, and they uh, can operate also in politically denied uh, environments and uh, sensitive uh, uh, politically uh, denied uh, poli politically sensitive objectives and in usually in support of um, strategic level objectives of the state uh, there's uh, this is roughly the difference then we can dis discuss a number of other things but let's like, say this is fairly uh, a fairly um, a rough uh, design of this, but that's the 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 difference. When I talk special forces, I'm thinking commando units. Let's put it this way: Royal Marines, the Paras, U.S. Uh, Marines, um, 
uh, uh, the U.S. Rangers, Rangers yeah, yeah, the exactly. Ranger, Ranger Regiment, even if the Ranger Regiment has uh, a, a foot more into uh, special operations community, uh, because, for instance, the Ranger Reconnaissance Company um, is a special operations unit. Um, that depends on the... But, I mean, these special forces can also be tasked with support, usually, for uh, special operations forces. But special operations has a particular set of missions and capabilities that are far beyond the reach of conventionally organized forces. I hope that may elucidate the question, David, if I... If uh, add anything. Feel free to add anything. And no, I was going. I think you said it brilliantly. Uh, the 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 you know the uh, SOF have a, a different set of skill sets, right? And often they'll come out of uh, special uh, special forces units. They don't necessarily always have to. I thought you uh, said it really well. And uh, uh, for ages, I've been in my you know, because often I hear us talking about um, SOF often, and I go. There really aren't that many SOF people around there. Normally, they're just SF that we're talking about, and there is a difference. So I thought you explained it brilliantly. Thank you very much, Nuno. Well, point. Go ahead before we go into the politics. Axel is there, steaming. Yeah, I politics. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, um, uh, Nancy to Nick. Um, I wasn't actually talking about the guy actually knowing that a Royal Marine trainer or Rangers trainer or anything like that would actually train these guys. But the fact that like tens of thousands of, tra of troops have been trained in Europe—that's what I was actually trying to get at. Not the fact I understood that. that. You know, I understood that one. Yeah, um, but the other thing um, was um, the, the, with the, with the, like um, obviously um, like Paris Rangers and all this sort of thing. But um, when I look at—I mean, obviously it doesn't happen anymore. But um, when I was serving in Northern Ireland, for instance, the Paris—they were actually working as um, special operations forces, actually like theoretically behind enemy lines, dug in. Um, watching over areas uh, just like um, SOF would do, you know. I mean, they have yes, like, yes, sure, sure. That's that's what we call um, a special operations capable unit. That's what I call yeah. It. And and um, and my job was I was insertion. I was actually a door gunner in Northern Ireland, so uh, mm -hmm. that was I was taking part with actually dropping off SAS, SPF, uh, sneaky beakies and stuff like this. So you know, it was like a bit of a mixed match sort of um, situation that I had, I suppose myself, you know. And also my father and my brother. My father was a para. My brother was a Royal Marine. And I was actually yeah, and <laughs> your, your, your brother strayed from the proper path. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> no, you. but uh, for instance, I'll I'll give us I'll give a quick example for the for the Portuguese case. Uh, my unit, we are in Portugal. We are known as Army Rangers, right? Because initially we were trained by the U.S. Army Rangers. Nowadays, we are more akin to British SAS and uh, U.S. Uh, Special uh, Army Special Operations than uh, what initially was the Ranger Regiment, even if we keep some tradition of it and whatnot. But traditionally also, some of the people in Special Operations Forces are guys who came from Airborne Regiments, uh, Marines, um, some of the specialized units that guys want to go the, the next step. So that's in that sense. Yes, and, but most of the times... We have, for instance, the commando regiment, who, which is special operations capable, and the airborne regiment too, and the airborne brigade too. They, the airborne infantry, they have uh, the ability to support, and they're tasked with support of special operations. And in that sense, they'll conduct special operations of their own, 
uh, to support uh, the the mission parameters. That's that's normal. Even the Marines do it, and so that's that's perfectly in line with with what you're saying. Waypoint. Excellent. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Bye bye, bye. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Let's go to the politics, man. You've been exactly. sitting over there for like twenty minutes. <laughs> that's all right. I I I like that we were able to address a number of those questions, and people are. Uh, obviously very interested in digging deeper into the granularity of SOF operations and the likes, and who better to ask than you? So I, I feel for them, that's okay. Um, nevertheless, we do have, obviously, lots and lots of movement in Europe. I'm not going to go into the Maloney thing quite yet, but we've had um, meetings in Brussels. We had uh, rather haphazardly seemingly organized meetings in Paris. Uh, then we had the full bore treatment, absolutely historic, in London. Uh, President Zelensky, against the backdrop of a uh, potential Russian advance, um, is zigzagging through Europe. He's collecting essential commitments bilaterally, and uh, he's trying to, like, um, in a good game of Mikado, he's trying to remove the little pieces without completely rustling the pot and uh, therefore trying to make sure that he wins some points. The Brits open the Pandora's box of uh, fighter jets uh, with typhoons to be considered and reviewed. Um, the French have been rumored to be, rather than Leclerc's, at least uh, considered our mirage. Um, Olaf Scholz has to go there to literally stand up for himself in Paris. And Miss Maloney is a little bit miffed that she wasn't considered to be part of it. Where does it all make sense? Is Zelensky just playing this like a piano or is it a necessity as to what he does? I think the man is doing his job, right? People say Zelensky in the eve of Russian offensive. I've, I've seen that trope. The guy has left Ukraine and is uh, going around the well. His job is not to fight the war. Zelensky fights the war, right? His job is to keep the war going overall, right? And keep the country afloat. And that means he's doing his job. Obviously, let's see. First of all, obviously, uh, Zelensky had been to the US. So he now was in the UK and uh, is now in the EU. Uh, with that, you take off the three uh, large uh, supporters of Ukraine, especially the US and the EU, uh, and the three military supporters of Ukraine and the economic support, the big support of Ukraine, Europeans and the Americans, all of them. Um, and that's that's something that uh, was required after the visit to Washington politically because uh, Zelensky could not uh, do it uh, any other way. Uh, obviously, also, uh, the Brits treated him to a regal... Um, uh, welcome, uh, actually a royal welcome. A guy who meets the king in fatigues has all my support. Um, but he uh, he secured the, the beginning of the conversation. I think the the big point here is two things. First of all, start the conversation going on fighters, on fighter jets, in long range weapons. Start that conversation going. Uh, put it on the table. Start it. Start that conversation. That's one. The Brits, uh, again, did that. 
the French will probably follow on. I don't think the typhoon is a very uh, interesting choice. Um, but okay, let's go. If the typhoon it is, well, send twenty, send two squadrons of typhoons, and we'll drop all uh, Russian fighters uh, from 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 the air in Ukraine. But the thing is, um, he had politically, he had to do it right. It, it's it's the proper political move to uh, go and start that conversation ahead of Ramstein, the next round of Ramstein. And then, obviously, he needed to come to Europe, uh, to the EU, uh, to Brussels, uh, to address Parliament, sure, and to address uh, the Council. Uh, it's important because Parliament is the power of the purse uh, and it's the elected body. That's always important. And council is the decision makers because the commission they have uh, he has won over the commission for sure and von der Leyen has played uh, a tremendous role in all of this. I think history will look on her role very very with very good eyes because she did a very she has been doing an extremely good job given her a specific set of uh, competences that she. The commission sometimes uh, overstepped, uh, but in a good way. But that said, he had to come over. I think that episode in Paris uh, was not spectacularly done, especially without including Italy. That's also uh, our local political considerations, of course. But I think the Italians should have been Sorry, should have been included because, uh, let's be frank, Italy is one of the big defense industrial bases in Europe. And that really, Maloney is right to be upset with that. Excellent point. People often forget how comprehensively networked weapon systems manufacturing industries across Europe and how important Leonardo is as part of that, not just the naval side. Yes, of course, they're exceptionally strong there. But in terms of gunnery, artillery, scopes, uh, sensor technology, uh, the industrial heartland in the north with, uh, of Italy, with its absolute creativity, innovation, and precision manufacturing is vital for this effort. Um, and just for some political Absolutely. differences, how could you exclude them? How could what bad signaling? I mean, seriously. Yes, they may have it's, done it on the fly, but still, it's it's bad signaling. It's bad signaling. I think it's 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 actually very poorly done. It's it's political, of course, because Maloney uh, is a different family, political family. She's, uh, but Maloney is. Uh, one of the biggest supporters of Ukraine from the get-go. She said that, and funny enough, I had a bunch of people tell me that, no, she's dangerous for the support of Ukraine. No, I actually read the Women's Manifesto, and, well, I'm sorry to say, but she was very clear, and she's adhered to it uh, uh, fully. Is she a right-wing conser conservative? Sure, yeah, right. I know. I've read the manifesto. But uh, that's politics apart. I think it was uh, awful politics. And frankly, uh, people sometimes fail to realize what you just said, Axel. 
the the industrial the defense industrial base of Italy is tremendous right they've been building ships like there's no tomorrow they've built possibly only surpassed by the Chinese that's the scale we're talking about if the constellation class of frigates is going to be built by the Italians in the US for sure but it's going to be built by the Italians so that there's a you cannot exclude Italy in any sort form of decision making that involves the defense industrial base of Europe it's impossible it's not going to work and Scholz and Macron were not very happy that that's my point actually it seems also that um, now there's various uh, bits and bobs and Nick and I had discussed it earlier both last night when it happened and after the meeting had started and uh, then earlier today more news came out that essentially they were a little bit um, rushed in trying to still fit this in uh, so to say to append themselves to uh, the British um, yeah, full-blown reception which seemingly the French had not quite expected to be that strong so that uh, uh, Mr. Scholz was even called whilst he was in Parliament and was called upon to please hop on a plane and get over to Paris because that was the only way to still do some sort of a meeting on, say, continental soil prior to Brussels. This is very bad uh, looks, essentially, for integrated Europe. Just because of the the French and the Germans being miffed at the Brits for Brexit, um, uh, this is dropping the ball on uh, when you actually should be in the Super Bowl. It's like a, absolutely. Essentially, absolutely. It, it's it's like it, they, this is a, a return touchdown you're getting. You, you're you're punting and you allow a t- touchdown, uh, say a, a return touchdown, really right at the beginning of the Super Bowl, and you have all egg over your face. That's what it actually was. I think I think it's it's not very smart to try and stage that like that. Uh, I understand the the French doing it. I don't see. One thing is Macron do does it, right? So Zelensky goes to France. It's you could say okay, it's the European nuclear power. It's France. It's um, one of the supporters of Ukraine. Cool. Or going to Berlin because Berlin, with all its dragging, is the second largest supporter of Ukraine. Just after exactly. the United States of America. So if you want to go to somewhere, go to Berlin, right? Um, but if you're going to do this, don't exclude the Italians. And if you're excluding the Italians, why are you excluding the Polish? Because the Polish have been absolutely key in all of this. So it's a very bad sign. It's it's the old, uh, I'd say it's one of the things politically that I I didn't like about this. It's it's the old um, Franco-German engine mantra uh, that clearly applies to an extent. It, it looked like the Normandy format, you know, France and Germany trying to cajole Ukraine and accepting a process just like Steinmeier and people then did. And you end up with uh, the Minsk agreements yeah. and the likes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Bad, bad optics, bad optics. It's bad optics. 
Nick, I think our friend ahead. Nick has has a has a question or a comment in that regard as well. Yes, I think there's a degree of uh, speculation going on here in the absence of a certain amount of knowledge. Um, first of all, I don't recall anybody yesterday saying, "Oh, why didn't they invite the Italians and why didn't they invite the Poles?" So, to some extent, we're reacting to the uh, testiness of Malik. Meloni, we discussed well, on the space briefly. Well, okay. Um, uh, it, she's got her, you know, she's got her pound of flesh. She's got her word to put in. She's legitimately put her word in. Uh, secondly, as you pointed out, the, the the meeting with Macron was always going to be short anyway. Uh, could they have got, could they have got the poles there and the Italians? And then, oh well, yeah, yeah. But the Dutch are being pretty. You know, everyone would have wanted to be there. Given that, the whole point of the excursion was actually to go to the European Council meeting, where all twenty seven were present where multiple bilaterals were held. So, um, and the other thing is, we so don't know. So you're in agreement, Nick? You're in agreement? We don't know. We don't know. Who, we don't know who drew up the guest list. We don't know whose idea it was that Schultz should be there and not Maloney. Uh, I don't think... We don't, we don't know. I don't think it was done... I don't think, I don't think Macron said to Zelensky... By the way, I'm inviting my friend Olaf. I'm not inviting Maloney. I hope you're okay with that. I think that it would... I, I, I rather like to imagine that Zelensky was involved in the process as well, and that if he had insisted that Maloney be invited, that Maloney would have been invited. So let's not get too... You know, uh, These things are done by extensive negotiation in the same way that... Uh, I suspect it was probably Zelensky's initiative that they went down to see the tankers uh, being trained. And uh, so I think that a lot of this will have been organized by, and, and that the uh, that certainly uh, Zelensky will not have, you know, as I say, had he said, oh no, Maloney has to be there, then something would have been arranged. So I, I think we we are very keen on this space, on, on telling a story whereby everything bad is France and Germany, and everything that everyone else does pretty much is good. And I think we sometimes overdo it a little bit. So, um, no, yeah, that's no, my no, two cents. No, well, Nuno and I don't. just highlighted that Germany is actually one of the biggest suppliers. So, but please, Nuno, go. No, no, I would say that, Nick, no, don't get me wrong. I think Germany has been obviously dragged, kicking and screaming sometimes. But, 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 as I pointed out, Nick, uh, of course, Germany uh, is the second biggest backer outside of the United States of Ukraine, by far, uh, surpassing everyone else in Europe. And, and an important point about Germany is the massive political shift that we have seen regarding uh, German politics and German strategic culture, right? Uh, this as in a in a in a what is a fair uh, a, a fairly small amount of time we've seen a massive shift of German uh, political culture, and in that sense, um, sometimes they have to be dragged kicking screaming for sure. But uh, uh, let's not say Germany did. Germany has been doing. A very interesting has been one of the interesting aspects of, of of all this politically is the shift in Germany, right? 
uh, I usually joke that the the rise of Anna Elena Barbok as uh, a Russia hawk is one of the most fascinating things about all of this process. Um, and Nick, uh, to your point on, uh, obviously this was not conjured out of thin air. This was probably negotiated. Um, I'd say that should should have been some more care uh, on uh, the the French and the German and the French side in particular to do this. But but uh, honestly, uh, the big objective was the council in Parliament. In Parliament, that's for sure. And uh, we also don't know, and this is an important point, what uh, may France throw in to the mix uh, now uh, that we are seeing... Um, sorry, that my bad, my bad here. Um, so uh, we're not seeing what France might have been throwing uh, into the into the stage uh, at this point. So I'd say, because France still has quite a few capacities that it can throw in, if you get my meaning. So that's my point. Let's not bang. I'm not, uh, I'm not a German basher, in, in, to the contrary. Um, and I'm not a French basher. I'll, I'm, if I had a political family in Europe, would Macron would be the leader of it. But um, I admit that the guy in this sometimes... Um, have not behaved the the most, but uh, the, as far as good as he came, as good as he can. But to 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 say a good thing about the French uh, and is that France knows as usually usually they're more nuanced than this, but they usually have two modes: either they'll throw you under the bus for their own interests, or they'll fight with you to the bitter end. And I think that there was a shift in in in, uh, German, in French approach to this, where they have, uh, for sure, uh, decided that Ukraine must win. And uh, in that sense, don't take me as a German and French basher because I'm not. Okay. Earlier on today, I was having a discussion with someone because I, I noted that the UK, uh, the UK yesterday morning had a press release. You know, we're going to be sending, we're going to be sending uh, long-range missiles, and uh, by by this morning, uh, that had become. We had some very good discussions about long-range missiles, which which could mean many things. But you know, certainly they certainly didn't stand up yesterday and said we're sending three hundred Storm Shadow or whatever it was. And I I, I mentioned to this person, you know, that 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 seemed to have moved. And I was told, oh yes, but lots of things happen. You know, lots of this stuff is being delivered without us being told about it. Uh, and then uh, that, that appears to apply to, uh, again, this, this space is, is, it does have a tendency to assume that if France and Germany aren't announcing anything, they aren't sending anything. Whereas if other countries aren't announcing anything, well, we don't know. And I think sometimes we are, uh, the, there is a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of confirmation bias uh, going on. That, that's all. So, um, but in the case, like as you yourself said, you know, well, hold on, we invited... We invited uh, Maloney. The polls 
arguably, I think the polls actually, in terms of what they've already done, even if they and their military industry perhaps, probably arguably have a better case. Now you've got to sit down and rank, you know, are you going to sit down and rank all of those or are you going to say no? Uh, Macron says Zelensky is coming and I'm sure he probably said, shall I invite Schultz? And Zelensky said yes. And I'm sure that was that, that seems to me the most that seems to me the most parsimonious mm-hmm. explanation. Yes, yes, it's probably the the right explanation too. It's uh, they um, the French. Um, we should not forget uh, that it was France that started the main battle tank uh, discussion with when it committed uh, the AMX ten uh, RC, right? So in that sense, there's uh, this. Uh, French French support is not always visible. That's the way the French do things also. That's important to say. And Germany is the second, by all extents, it's the second supporter of Ukraine after the United States of America. Period. And that's it. And that's, that's a, a measurable, quantifiable fact. Another point about this, go ahead, Axel. No, I just wanted to highlight uh, the Germans also have this strange tendency to do uh, stuff publicly uh, as a consequence of this current government's belief that um, they are constantly uh, fighting a rearguard battle, quite literally, in terms of communication. And, and then they decided to go yeah. full bureaucratic. And and there's a problem with German, with this government in particular, which I think it's the lack of political uh, sensitivity in, in PR, a proper communication PR. Because trust me, if the British, and I'll say this to our British friends, if the British government had supplied the amount of hardware and money that Germany had supplied, God, man, we'd have every newspaper in Britain and every television network banging us 24-7 with that, right? And every pundit writing in the Telegraph and writing on Sunday uh, on the Sun and whatever telling us uh, that Britain is world-beating in support of Ukraine. As Nick was pointing out, there's there's this, this is a very um, particular... Um, area let's put it this way the way the people do things it's it's very very particular so uh, we need to be um aware of that and there's always internal politics at play in all of this so that needs to be taken into consideration of course but as nick was saying this what probably happened was the the easiest smart smartest fastest way to do this it's um the uh, Macron invited um, Zelensky, asked if he could invite Schultz, and Zelensky obviously said yes. And there's probably some French support on the way in terms of other, of other uh, things, uh, of other assets that the French can deploy to Ukraine. Axel, anything else, or yeah, I don't know if there's no, no politically. More I think to... we've, we, I think we've covered the key aspects of what what is happening on this end. Uh, what is maybe relevant is to highlight that uh, the uh, support from the United States has been um, tremendous in recent weeks. That um, despite even uh, the humdrum of the State of the Union address and the likes, but each and every committee um, currently considering the matter 
is extremely supportive. And no matter what <laughs> the far left and the far right and the, some of the media outlets are uh, spouting, um, it seems that the U.S. Congress is quite unfazed. Yes, some people want to uh, pursue further avenues of uh, ensuring compliance here, there, and whatnot, and that may be the case. But at the same time, the federal government has just simply pushed through the whole process already last year to upgrade and integrate the Ukrainian procurement process and and what happens to weapons and ordnance so tightly into what is NATO procedures and processes that they just simply roll out the data. And uh, what we've heard recently is that the Senate Armed Forces Committee, as well as the, the people in the House, were just quite shocked to find out that the Ukrainians are doing it strictly by the book. Um, so I, I think and, we'll see a lot more commitment. Yeah, and I think I think both the U.S. Uh, administration and uh, the European Union um, basically uh, prepared uh, support for Ukraine for 2023 already, late last year. So in that sense, um, the money is not going to run out this year. And regarding U.S. politics, I would say that... Um, Everybody thinks a lot of things. Everybody says a lot of things. Everybody jumps the, through the hoops. What matters is what the Appropriations Committee of the Senate and the House say. That's what matters. And yeah. that's it. That's it. All right. Absolutely. Fully agreed. I'd say that we've covered about everything we wanted to cover. Axel, um, everyone, again, if you want to uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, for being here on Thursday evening, uh, London in Lisbon time. And um, stay safe and let's keep following Ukraine as it develops. Axel David, thank you for the for the session. And thank you for the it questions was a delight. and uh, the steering. And see you next week, guys.